the northeast corner of Paris, down the Boulevard de Melimontant, is 110 acres, or 44 hectares, of corpses. It's hard to say exactly how many people have been interred at the Père Lachaise Cemetery since its opening in May of 1804. You'll see a lot of websites begin their estimates at 300,000, but the official website for the city of Paris estimates that number is around 1 million. The cemetery itself has a long history, and on more than one occasion, that history has been as grim as the rows of graves and tombs you can still walk through today. And you can do that for free, there's no charge for admission. And millions of people travel to the cemetery each year to see the graves of some of history's most iconic figures. Jim Morrison, Oscar Wilde, Proust, Chopin, Gertrude Stein, the star-crossed lovers Eloise and Abelard, whose love story is going on its 900th year or so. And I'd like to take you there today, tell you the history, walk you through the tombs and trees to where so many anonymous and famous people have lain down for the last time, and introduce you to a few. So, let's go to Paris. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Before the hillside in the 20th arrondissement of Paris became the resting place for a million dead, it was called Champs-Évêques and was the home of a merchant in the 15th century. By the 17th century, the Jesuits, a Catholic order of religious men known for their missionary and educational works, came into possession of the house, setting up a retreat there. The official confessor of King Louis XIV, a man called Father Francois de la Chaise Day, more commonly referred to as Père Lachaise, resided there, and it's from him that the later cemetery derived its name. Makes you wonder what the secrets the confessor of a king had rolling around in his head. The Jesuits changed the name of the hill to Mont-Louis in honor of their king, who was said to visit the area on occasion. After the king's bodyguard set up residence there as well, the hill became known for its lavish parties, well attended by those wishing to gain the king's favor or that of his confessor. After Père Lachaise died in 1709, the area was expanded and the Jesuits continued to reside there until their order was expelled from France in 1764. By then, France was ruled by a new king, Louis XV, Louis XIV having died six years after his confessor. By then, the order of the Jesuits was causing controversy all over Europe. The monarchy didn't like them or their veneration of the Pope, or their aptitude for trade and economics, which garnered them some financial power. The Order's defense of indigenous cultures in the Americas, citing the cruelty of European colonizers, made them even more of a thorn in the side of monarchy. Some critics cited lasciviousness and claimed irreverence was rampant in the Order. Some were disturbed that the Order was beginning to integrate Eastern thought and philosophy derived from Buddhism and Confucianism into their practices. 
The order was abolished by Pope Clement XIV in 1773, but they maintained a presence in Russia until Pope Pius VII re-established the order in 1814. And the Pope today, Pope Francis, was the first Jesuit ever to be elected Pope. But in France, by the late 18th century, the order survived only in memory. By the late 1700s, Paris was running out of burial space, and people were dying in large numbers of disease, plague, starvation, and many unclaimed corpses were buried in mass graves without any preservation processes. The decaying corpse contaminated water supplies and spread unsanitary conditions, causing further spreading of even more illness and disease. In 1765, the Council of State decreed that bodies and bones from the Paris cemeteries needed to be relocated and placed into the old quarries and tunnels beneath the city. The almost 200 miles of limestone tunnels where the stone used to build the Louvre and Notre Dame had been quarried from were now consecrated as catacombs of the dead. Today, they hold the bones of six million people. You can go on a tour of the catacombs today. See the famous sign over the underground archway that reads, Arrête, c'est ici l'Empire de la Mort. Or stop, here lies the Empire of the Dead. And if you do go, buy your tickets in advance or prepare to wait in line for a couple hours at least. Or you can do what I did and be the only idiot that tries to go on a Monday when they're closed. I got there super early, thinking I was the first in line, and waited for about 20 minutes until a kind stranger felt bad enough for me to tell me why I was the only one there. But I digress. In 1804, Père Lachaise was officially designated as a cemetery. At 17 hectares, or roughly 42 acres, it was much smaller than it is today. It was established by Emperor Napoleon, who declared it a non-denominational cemetery, having said, quote, every citizen had the right to be buried regardless of race or religion. It was designed by architect Alexandre Théodore Bonnard, who derived his inspiration from English-style gardens incorporating uneven paths that would wind throughout the grounds, along with numerous plants and trees surrounding the carved graves. He left extra room for funerary monuments and tombs to be built, anticipating it would be a leading spot for burials. But when it opened, the cemetery was not popular. Many people thought it was too far from the city, and it wasn't officially incorporated into the Ville de Paris until 1860. Moreover, many Catholics refused burial there because it was not officially blessed by the Catholic Church. In 1804, there were only 13 graves on the hill. So, what was Napoleon to do? How could he make popular this dud of a graveyard? The answer? Dead celebrities. The first was Louise de Lorraine, wife of Henry III. She had been queen consort of France during his reign, as well as Poland for a while although she never wielded any real power, seeing as she had Catherine de' Medici as a mother-in-law. She fell into a deep depression after the assassination of her husband, choosing to don the color white, as that was the traditional color of mourning in France. This earned her the nickname, the White Queen. 
She also covered the walls of her room with black, preferring a somber atmosphere to match her sadness. When she died of dropsy, which we now know was probably congenital heart failure at the age of 47, her fortune went to paying her debts, and the rest went to her niece, Françoise de Lorraine, as she and Henry were never able to conceive a child of their own. Two hundred years later, her bones were delivered to Père Lachaise, complete with all sorts of pomp and circumstance. You won't find her there today, though, as she was moved again to the Catholic Basilica in Saint-Denis. People love royals, especially dead ones, and moving her body to Père Lachaise sparked great interest in the cemetery, and being interred there started to be seen as a status symbol. To up the ante, Napoleon had the remains of famous writer La Fontaine interred there as well, as well as the famous playwright Molière, and you can still visit both of their graves at Père Lachaise today. Josephine Bonaparte, wife of Napoleon and Empress of France, had her own addition to make to Père Lachaise. She was a fan of one of the most famous medieval love stories of all time, so moved by it that she had the star-crossed lovers who died in 1142 and 1164 CE respectively relocated to the cemetery. I'm talking, of course, about Abelard and Eloise. Their story is difficult to interpret fully, much of the information coming from the letters they sent to one another. Abelard was a French philosopher and was considered to be one of the greatest theologians of the day, although his ideas were controversial and considered by many to be heretical. Later in life, he would be forced to burn some of his own writings himself. He was a bit cocky and famous even in his own day, reportedly having thousands of students come to hear him teach. Sometime around 1108, he became a scholar in residence at Notre Dame. Eloise was one of the most well-educated women of her time, and her uncle, Canon Fulbert, spared no expense in giving her the best education he could, which was a rare opportunity for a woman to have in 12th century Europe. She was gifted, too, and a brilliant scholar of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Her intelligence had gained her some fame in her own right. Naturally drawn to this intelligent and reportedly very beautiful young woman, Abelard convinced her uncle to allow him to become her teacher. Wanting his niece to have the best education possible, her uncle agreed, even allowing Abelard to live with them. He would greatly come to regret this decision. Despite their age difference, which many scholars have purported to be as much as 20 years, the two fell in love. When he discovered this, her uncle did everything he could to keep them apart. But even still, Eloise soon became pregnant with their child out of wedlock. And remember, this was the 12th century. The two of them fled to Brittany and later married in secret at the urging of her uncle to avoid what was already a huge scandal in the making. Eloise was opposed to the idea of marriage but was pressured into it anyway. It's unclear as to exactly why the marriage was done in secret, but it seems to be because the two were afraid a marriage would damage Abelard's career, which may mean that he was in some sort of holy order at the time, and the Catholic Church forbade those who had taken holy orders to marry. A marriage would have ended his career and halted any professional advancement. 
Despite the discretion of their marriage, Eloise's uncle Fulbert was openly vocal about it, probably to intentionally damage Abelard's reputation. Eloise, not wanting to harm Abelard's ambition, began to deny they were married at all, and Abelard then had her placed in a convent at Argentoy to protect her from her uncle. At least that's the story. At the convent, she dressed as a nun and lived the life of one, but was reportedly not veiled. Believing that Abelard had moved Eloise to the convent to get rid of her so he could resume advancing his own career, Fulbert had some of his connections bribe one of Abelard's servants to let them sneak into his chamber at night. Then they castrated him, which seems a bit of an overreaction. After this, disgraced, Abelard lived the life of a monk, and Eloise, against her wishes, officially became a nun at Abelard's request, and eventually became an abbess. She didn't want to get married in the first place, she didn't want to become a nun, and she spent the rest of her life separated from Abelard. The two wrote letters to one another for the rest of their lives, but would never see one another again. The fate of their son and only child is unknown. Their story has been hyped as one of the greatest love stories of all time, but in truth, it was complicated. Today, the Crypt of Abelard and Eloise is one of the most popular at Père Lachaise. Lovers and love seekers often leave love letters on their graves, either in tribute to their love or in the hopes of finding love for themselves. Bringing the bodies of all these bygone celebrities to Père Lachaise was a phenomenal success and skyrocketed the popularity of the graveyard. By 1830, there were 33,000 tombs, and the cemetery had to be expanded six times by 1850, when it finally reached the size it is today. Twice, Père Lachaise has been the site of tragic historical events. The first was in 1814, during the Napoleonic Wars. It was overrun by Russian troops in the Battle of Paris after they had wiped out the students from the military academy that had been entrenched there. Then, the Paris Commune, which was a rising up of Parisians against the French government from March to May of 1871, occurred after France's defeat in the Franco-German War and the collapse of Napoleon III's Second Empire. These communards experienced the second major violent upheaval in Père Lachaise. The remaining 147 members of the commune that had held out against the soldiers from Versailles were cornered at Père Lachaise, where they were lined up against the cemetery wall and shot, their bodies falling lifeless into an open trench. Today, there's a plaque commemorating the site, and you can still run your fingers over the bullet holes in the wall. The Battle of Paris and the execution of the 147 communards are the two biggest violent events to occur at Père Lachaise, but they did not mark the last death that would occur in the cemetery. In 2014, American tourists stumbled upon a horrible scene where they found a 66-year-old Parisian man's body laying lifeless between two of the tombs. He had been bludgeoned to death, his skull nearly crushed. Police quickly arrested a 27-year-old man with a history of violence. Another death on Mont-Louis. 
Although its history at times has been incredibly dark, Père Lachaise is well worth the visit. The list of historical giants interred there is long. One of the most visited graves belongs to legendary Irish poet, novelist, and playwright Oscar Wilde. Born in Dublin in 1854, Oscar became a celebrity in his own time, writing novels and plays that are still popular today. A Picture of Dorian Gray, Salome, The Importance of Being Earnest, you probably had to read at least one of those in high school, and you probably enjoyed it because Wilde had a way with words, especially those famous one-liners of his. Things like, true friends stab you in the front, and to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. And when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I'm old, I know that it is. He would have totally killed it on Twitter. He was successful, but his personal life was tumultuous. Many of his famous one-liners are critiques about married life and what he believed were torrid relationships between men and women. Quips like, A man can be happy with a woman as long as he does not love her. Or, the one charm about marriage is that it makes a life of deception absolutely necessary for both parties. Not exactly happily ever after stuff. He married in 1884, and he and Constance Lloyd had two sons together. But in 1891, he began an affair with Lord Alfred Douglas, a British poet and aristocrat, and a man 16 years his junior. Wilde was put on trial for homosexuality in England, which was a crime there until 1967. He was sentenced to two years hard labor and prison, and his time there was turbulent. He wrote a 50,000-word letter to Lord Alfred while he was incarcerated, although Alfred denied ever receiving it. In it, he wrote, To regret one's own experiences is to arrest one's own development. To deny one's own experiences is to put a lie into the lips of one's own life. It is no less than a denial of the soul. The trial had been sensational, as it involved a lord and a celebrity. His wife took their two children to Switzerland and changed their surnames to Holland. Constance never officially divorced him, but she did force him to give up his parental rights, and he would never see his children again. After being released from prison, Oscar left England for France, where he lived the next three years of his life in poverty, and changed his name to Sebastian Melmoth. He died in Paris from meningitis three years later, at the age of 45. It was a truly tragic ending. In 2017, Wilde, along with 50,000 other men who had been imprisoned for homosexuality, were pardoned under the Alan Turning Law. 2017 seems a bit late, but progress nonetheless. On his epitaph is a verse he wrote himself in one of his own works. It says, And alien tears will fill for him pity's long broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. His grave is one of the most popular in Père Lachaise. A glass facade had to be erected over his tomb, and even that has been covered in hundreds of thousands of lipstick kiss marks, as well as letters, flowers, and trinkets. He gets at least a thousand visitors each day. There's another famous grave in Père Lachaise that's actually a bit tricky to find. 
So to help people find him, his fans will blast some of his most famous works through their portable speakers. You'll probably hear where Chopin's grave is before you see it. Chopin was born in Warsaw in 1810, which officially became a part of Poland in 1815. He was the most brilliant composer and pianist of his day. Already a genius at 20, he moved to Paris before turning 21, where he lived the remainder of his life. He wrote 230 pieces of music that still survive today, but there were probably more. He only gave 30 public performances, so he made a living giving piano lessons and selling his compositions. He was the first great composer to ever focus only on the piano. He began to fall ill in his late 30s, and by the time of his last performance in 1848, he was reportedly only 99 pounds, or 45 kilos. He died in 1849 at the age of 39. Before he died, he requested that his sister Ludwika bury his body in Paris, but take his heart back to Poland. And so she did. Many believe that the heart, floating in a crystal jar of cognac, encased in the pillar of a church in Warsaw, really is the heart of Chopin. And it just might be. The only way to know for sure would be if a sample could be taken for analysis, but there is strong opposition to any testing, so this has not been done. His official cause of death on his death certificate was tuberculosis, but many over the years questioned this, citing other possibilities like cystic fibrosis or a form of emphysema. According to the BBC, in 2014, a visual analysis was done at night in secret by genetic and forensic scientists. The heart they saw was well-preserved, and they could see that it was enlarged and bore what looked like tuberculosis nodules, all factors pointing to the original diagnosis of TB. Though the nodules could be an indication of a number of different diseases, such as cancer or even a fungal infection, and the inflammation could have been caused by a number of respiratory diseases. The heart was not removed from the jar, and without sample testing, the cause of death can't be 100% certain, but it does look as if tuberculosis could have killed whosever heart is in the crystal jar of cognac. I hope it is Chopin's actual heart, because that would just be terribly romantic. If you walk from Chopin's grave to the 6th division, Grade 5, second row, you will see the final resting place of Jim Morrison, rock and roll legend and frontman of The Doors. Morrison's death was unexpected. He had been in Paris for four months, some saying he needed a break from fame, some believing he wanted to get clean, which was probably not an easy thing to do in Paris in the 1970s. Heroin, other drugs, and alcohol were everywhere. Jim was said to be a shy and artistic man when sober, but fiery-tempered when drunk. The only eyewitness account we have comes from his longtime girlfriend, Pam Corson, who was the last person to see him alive. She said she was awakened in the middle of the night by Morrison heavily breathing. He told her he was going to take a bath and retreated to the bathtub in their apartment, which is where she found his lifeless body at dawn the next morning. She herself would die of a heroin overdose three years later. The official cause of death is listed as heart failure, 
probably brought on by drug usage, but conspiracy theories immediately abounded. Everything from murder to latent injuries from a two-story fall to Morrison faking his own death. The fact that his body wasn't autopsied has added to the fire and to the confusion over the years, as without an autopsy, a true cause of death can't really be determined. The funeral for Morrison at Père Lachaise was done quickly, with maybe half a dozen people in attendance. The grave was at first unmarked, and his body was added to the poet's corner near Moliere. A plaque was placed on the gravesite, but it was quickly stolen. After being replaced, it was promptly stolen again. In 1981, a bust of Morrison was placed at his grave. That was defaced and then stolen. By 2004, the destruction done in and around Morrison's grave was out of control. Fans were trampling on nearby graves and even defacing them with graffiti. One neighboring mausoleum had even been dismantled. The whole area was littered with beer cans, garbage, and whiskey bottles. Cemetery officials have erected metal barricades around the site in response to the mess and vandalism. This has helped curb the long, ongoing destruction at the site. Even with the metal barriers in place, his grave is still one of the most visited at Père Lachaise. Along with all these giants of music and literature, there is also an idol of the world of dance. Isadora Duncan is often called the mother of modern dance, a title she sometimes shares with later influential dance choreographer Martha Graham. She was born in San Francisco in 1877 and took to dance very early, beginning with teaching dance lessons to children in her neighborhood in her teenage years. She moved to Chicago, then New York, pursuing her passion all the while. Her unique vision clashed with the forms of dance of the day. Her style emphasized using natural movement in dance instead of the more rigid movements of traditional ballet. She said each movement was born from the previous one in an ongoing evolution of fluid motion. Unhappy with her reception in the States, she moved to London, then Paris, where she was received with greater enthusiasm. She traveled all over Europe and continued to develop her unique style that would influence the art of dance in an undeniable way. She opened schools to teach her techniques and philosophy of dance, and she trained protégés that would continue her legacy. Interestingly, Duncan met famous occultist Alistair Crowley at a party, and he was so impressed with her that he later wrote of her, saying, quote, Isadora Duncan has this gift of gesture in a very high degree. Let the reader study her dancing, if possible in private, then in public, and learn the superb unconsciousness, which is magical consciousness, with which she suits the action to the melody." Unquote. She followed her passion, and it made her a great success. But her personal life was wrought with tragedy. Isadora had two children, and one day while their nanny was driving them through Paris, she lost control of the car, which spun into the Seine River. Both of the children and the nanny drowned. Isadora would later give birth to another child, a son, but he would die shortly after birth. Later, in 1921, she would marry acclaimed Russian poet Sergei Yesenin, a man 18 years her junior. He joined her on a tour of Europe and the U.S., but their marriage was rocky. He left Isadora and returned to Moscow, where, two years after writing a poem titled 
goodbye, my friend, goodbye, in his own blood, he hanged himself in a hotel room. In 1927, in Nice, France, Isadora was riding in a convertible, an Amilcar specifically. A friend of hers urged her to wear a cape as the weather was cold, but Isadora decided on a scarf instead, a favorite of hers and a gift from a friend. When they began driving, the scarf became caught, entangling itself around the open-spoked wheels and rear axle of the car, choking her, pulling her from the car, and breaking her neck. She was dead at age 50. Her cremated remains are placed next to those of her children in Père Lachaise. Another life cut too short, too tragically, and too soon, and resting at Père Lachaise. There are so many more historically influential people in Père Lachaise, and I wish I had time to research them all. Gertrude Stein, Proust, Balzac, Edith Piaf, Colette, Eugène Delacroix, all people so epic they could easily have their own full-length episodes. These are just some of the graves you can visit today, and any one would be enough of a reason to make the trip to the Hill of Mont-Louis. That piece of ground has seen war, murder, mourning, vandalism, and the extremes of human emotion for centuries now. It is a powerful place. It has come a long way from the cemetery where no one wanted to be buried to one of the most prestigious places to be interred. It's almost impossible to get a grave at Père Lachaise today. You have to have either lived in Paris or died there, and if you tick one or both of those boxes, you still have to go on a waiting list. If you're lucky enough to get a spot, you have to take out a lease on your gravesite. You can lease a grave for 10, 30, or 50 years, and if your family doesn't renew the lease after it's up, you will be removed. If your family is lucky enough to already have a plot there, your remains will probably be combined with those of previously deceased relatives. Once someone has decomposed enough, another coffin or person can be interred on top. Père Lachaise is crowded with a million corpses, and it can't get any bigger. This means many family mausoleums or multi-family tombs have dozens of bodies buried inside of them. Sometimes even shelves are added to accommodate the growing number of remains. According to an article in The Guardian, there are about 14,000 deaths in Paris every year, with only about 150 paid-for burial spots available in the entire city each year. That includes all of the city's 14 cemeteries. It also costs over 15,000 euro for a plot. That's well over 18,000 US dollars. So death in Paris is expensive, but what isn't? And if you find yourself in Paris at the top of Mont-Louis, take a quiet walk through the tombs of Père Lachaise See the wall of communards, hear the wind through the trees, smell the decaying leaves, feel the stone of the monuments with your hands. Say hello to Oscar Wilde, and be still for a moment on that hill in Paris that brought a million people together. A million people who never met, lived lives vastly different from one another, but were all united in the end because of that one inevitable thing we all have in common. 
As Moliere said, before he came to lay forever at Père Lachaise, even Rome cannot grant us a dispensation from death. That's going to conclude our tour of the Père Lachaise Cemetery. I hope you enjoyed hearing its history and the stories of some of its most famous residents. I apologize for any background noises you may have heard in this episode. My super handy and extremely kind father-in-law has been patching holes in the walls outside of our house because we've been infested by an army of squirrels. And they are winning. I'll be back with you in two weeks' time with the conclusion of Shackleton's story. If you want to donate to the show, you can do so for just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Patrons get access to the members-only feed, occasional bonus episodes, and if I can ever afford merchandise, they'll get a percentage off on that, too. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and rating it on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really, really helps the show become more visible. And thank you so much for listening today. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I'm so grateful that you chose to listen to mine. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, unless the squirrels get me, my dear superheroes of history, time, legend, and Parisian cemeteries, go make some history.